Welcome to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian specializing in pandemics. And in this episode, I'll be asking, why do we fall for conspiracy theories? Are they all a bit of innocent fun? Or are they doing real damage? And if so, is there an antidote? In recent weeks, the hashtag batshit crazy has been trending on Twitter. According to some, COVID was engineered in a laboratory and deliberately or accidentally released either by the Chinese or the Americans. Take your pick. For others still, the coronavirus pandemic is a hoax to enable the British government to install 5G under the cover of a countrywide lockdown. Over the Easter bank holiday weekend, Eamon Holmes, the presenter of ITV's This Morning, cast doubts on reports refuting the 5G conspiracies, saying, What I don't accept is mainstream media immediately slapping that down as not true, when they don't know it's not true. The broadcast regulator Ofcom is now assessing Eamon's comments. But sadly, quite a few people seem to agree with him, hence the recent arson attacks on 5G phone masks in Birmingham and other cities. Worse, Donald Trump has also gone batshit crazy. We hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that by injection inside or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number in the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that. To inject some sense into this nonsense, today I'll be speaking to David Robert Grimes, a cancer researcher and a vocal opponent of conspiracy theorists. You have cranks in every profession, you have charlatans in every profession. I reserve a particular amount of contempt for scientists and physicians who go off piste and start spreading conspiracy theories because I think that we have a responsibility with the training we've had to be exemplars of evidence-based science and medicine and when people don't do that, I just want to put them in a bag and hit them with a stick. But my first guest is Mike Jay, an author and culture historian. Mike writes widely on the history of science and medicine. He's also an expert on hallucinogenic drugs. His latest book is entitled Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. But today Mike's going to take us on a deep dive into the history of conspiracy theories and the roots of the notion that somewhere out there there's an evil puppet master trying to control your mind. Your research, what makes it fascinating is you show how a lot of these what have become modern tropes of conspiracy thinking or, or conspiratorial modes of thought really can be traced back to the French Revolution. Yeah, that's right. You know, the first great bestseller of modern conspiracy theory is called Proofs of a Conspiracy by John Robeson. And Robeson was a chemistry professor at Edinburgh University who was very sceptical of the new French chemistry and the metric system and Lavoisier. He saw this all as a conspiracy to, you know, take God out of the world. And the French Revolution, which was a sort of cataclysmic event, really set up the sort of polarized politics that we have in the modern world. You know, left wing and right wing originally came from the positions that delegates sat in the French assembly. So in this world of left and right, Robeson articulated this huge overarching conspiracy. The problem with the French Revolution was you couldn't say it was all Robespierre's doing or Danton's doing, because all the main figures had died. So there must be some big, bigger puppet 
puppet master back there. So Roberton's idea was that this rather sinister sounding atheistic uh, Masonic lodge called the Bavarian Illuminati were the people who'd been controlling all this. And this was all part of a big conspiracy that the French Revolution had all been about eradicating the church from politics and taking God out of the modern world. Okay, now wait there, you said that word Illuminati, and that rings huge bells for me. So I suppose when I think about my own career, long before I was a medical historian, when I was working as a journalist on the Evening Standard, I remember distinctly in the mid-1990s, there was this figure, David Icke, a former, I believe, Southampton goalkeeper, who had flipped over to the conspiracy side and was actually selling out uh, large halls in Wembley and other places And one of his key themes was this idea of the Illuminati. He mixed it up with other things like there were aliens, but the Illuminati was central. So who were the Illuminati? The Illuminati were a Bavarian Masonic lodge. So John Robeson was a Scottish Rite Freemason. He was a Mason himself, but, you know, of a rather straight type. And he was very shocked by these continental Masonic lodges where revolutionary and occult ideas were discussed. And the Illuminati was a lodge that was um, prohibited in Bavaria, Bavaria being very strict and Catholic and authoritarian, because of its progressive and revolutionary ideas. But the Illuminati, thanks to uh, Robeson and others, became a kind of template for this idea of a grand conspiracy that got brought back in the era of communism in the 20th century. So at the time when David Icke picked it up, you know, people like the John Birch Society right-wing organizations in the United States still believed that the Illuminati had been a real thing and was the forerunner of communism. It was a popular theory in the First World War. There was a British conspiracy theorist called Nestor Webster who believed that uh, the Illuminati had actually been the Jews and the protocols of the elders of Zion was really their sacred text. And actually, even Winston Churchill, you know, back in the 1920s, wrote rather approvingly about this. Yes, I take it that you, you think that these ideas having arisen in Europe, in, this, in Bavaria, and then being taken up by uh, John Robertson in, in Edinburgh, they then really cross the Atlantic and play a huge part in the Federalist movement, Jefferson, and, you know, the sort of battle over the shape of the US Constitution. That's right. I think one of the reasons that the Illuminati theory is so kind of sticky, if you like, you know, continues to resonate is that it it explains these kind of divides. So, In the early American Republic, there were some people like Jefferson, who believed the American Revolution should, you know, emulate and model itself on the French Revolution. And there were others like the Federalists, who believed in a very different model, you know, that was much more about a strong state protecting its wealthy citizens. So in this debate, the Illuminati, because they were so current, appeared, and it was argued that Jefferson was a member of the Illuminati. And this was debated, and, you know, all the evidence was produced, you know, rather in the way that the evidence for the 5G conspiracy is being produced these days. And it was shown that when held to the normal standards of political evidence, there was nothing to it. But it very effectively crystallized and captured the ideological debate that was going on behind the politics. You reminded me of something. So one of the the common tropes or symbols that you can see plastered on conspiratorial websites is the, the pyramid with the all-seeing eye that appears on the US $100, it's a $100 bill, I think. Yes, the eye in the pyramid it's a, is a Masonic symbol. 
So if you go to um, the Masonic Temple in Washington, D.C., for example, you know, which I think is the oldest Masonic Temple in America, you can see it everywhere there. A lot of the founding fathers were Freemasons, and so it found its way there. But then as the idea of Masonic influence became more sinister, you know, in the later 19th and 20th centuries, then this started to become an odd thing. You know, what's the secret meaning of this uh, eye in the triangle on the on the American currency? And then the waters were muddied by kind of, you know, sort of left-wing satirists, people like Robert Anton Wilson, who wrote the Illuminati trilogy. So it became a kind of subcultural, countercultural meme. So you get all these different kind of clashing meanings that impute to it, some more seriously than others. There's this idea that conspiracy theories are everywhere now, you can always argue that it's mainstream. But actually, your research shows that right at the beginning, it was almost mainstream. That book was a bestseller, wasn't it? John Robinson's book. It was a huge bestseller. I mean, it was a, it was also a great source of embarrassment to Robinson's friends and to the um, establishment generally. But um, we use the, the term conspiracy theory quite loosely now. And, and, and there are conspiracy theories that, uh, you know, when they're establishment, they tend not to be called conspiracy theories. I mean, we might argue that there was a conspiracy to portray Saddam Hussein as part of the um, 9-11 plot and to say that he had uh, weapons of mass destruction. I mean, we, we know now, or we think we have evidence that that was a conspiracy intended to launch a prearranged um, idea of regime change in Iraq. But nobody calls that a conspiracy theory because it was the official line. But I think that's, you know, behind a lot of our judgments that we make about conspiracy theory are these facts that sometimes the official line is not true. Sometimes it is a conspiracy. Often cons- conspiracy theories, they're seen as a battle between, today they're seen as a battle between science, scientific expertise, which is the present authority and those who are questioning the authority. But right in the beginning, it was the reverse, wasn't it? So John Robeson was standing up for the old authorities that were being challenged by the new Enlightenment science as represented by Lavoisier and this mathematical evidence-based method of scientific inquiry. Yes, conspiracy theories are often reactionary. In that sense, I think if you say that history is written by the winners, then maybe conspiracy theory is written by the losers. And so this can go either way when the world moves forward into uh, a more enlightened and progressive configuration from the progressive point of view, then the conspiracy theories about it will be reactionary. And I think we see that in American conspiracy theory culture and the way that that's become associated with a sort of right wing idea and a sort of protest against the corruption and the hypocrisy and the decadence of modernity. So I'm very pleased to welcome my second expert witness to this episode on conspiracy theories. And it's David Robert Grimes. Hi, David. How are you? Hello. You're in Dublin, right? I am. I'm in the, enjoying the bleak weather, trapped indoors like everyone else. So, uh, David, uh, your PhD, I think, was actually in physics, but you're now doing research into cancer at Dublin City University. And last year you had this book, a very timely book called The Irrational Ape, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk. So tell us, what is so wrong with all these conspiracy theories? What, what's wrong with people believing that maybe 5G has taken over their minds and, and whatever? Conspiracy theories have always existed. We've known that. But they've always been confined to a fringe. 
The problem is when they get a certain amount of traction, they can do serious harm. In the UK in the last two weeks, there's been a number of mobile phone masks burnt down, which has knocked out signal for emergency services and things like that. And if you really want to go into how extreme and, and bad it can get, when people start really subscribing to conspiracy theories, they tend to take on board a lot of ideas that they shouldn't and act on them. For example, if people believe in anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, they may not vaccinate their children, and the net effect of that can be death. So it seems harmless on one level, but if you follow it through to its logical conclusion, it is anything but. So the last time we, we spoke uh, on this podcast was um, at the event I curated at City University of London on precisely this question of declining levels of vaccine confidence. And one thing I was struck with today is the, the vaccine confidence project. You know, they did a poll um, some not that long ago, and they asked people in New York, you know, residents of New York, uh, whether they would take a vaccine in the event of a pandemic. So New York's one of the worst affected places by COVID, right? And apparently 29%, a third of respondents there said they would not consent to a vaccine. Is this an example of how this flawed logic puts all of us at risk and people who might die at risk particularly? Absolutely. And th those numbers are broadly similar to what was reported in Ireland in a survey last week. So you have that militant fringe who are sceptical. And actually, I should make a distinction between skept skeptical and denial uh, denialism, because it is healthy to be skeptical of things, to ask questions and go, OK, why should we do that? That is something I encourage. That is a really good thing. It's an entirely another thing to just assert something is dangerous or, or not dangerous and then ignore any evidence to the contrary. So sometimes people will describe themselves as skeptical of the mainstream media or the narrative, but they're really not, because they accept contrary information very readily. So if you look at how in, in the modern era, misinformation perpetuates. It perpetuates across social media. So you have people that will say, I'm not, I don't trust the CDC or I don't trust the WHO, not taking the coronavirus vaccine when it comes out. But they'll be getting their information off a Facebook page or an Instagram page with no validation or veracity behind it. So it's a veneer of being sceptical. Uh, it's a veneer of critical thinking that is anything but that. Is there some emotional appeal? Uh, you're saying it's not really rational because they're not really as sceptical. They're sceptical about some things, but not others. So what is it about those other things? What is it about these conspiracy sites? What is their allure? Well, I think we have to separate that into two different uh, aspects. And there's been some really fascinating psychology done on this. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but when I was writing the book, I realized I, you have to understand why people think the way they do. And it, it brings you into this interesting kind of domain. So you need to understand why do people subscribe to conspiratorial beliefs? And you need to separate them to the kind of people that do, because they're not all the same. So you have the extreme versions we have in our head, the Alex Joneses of this world, you know, the David Ikes, the, everyone's a lizard, the, the craziest stuff, right? What really motivates them is narcissism. It's the idea that they know something special, that they are uh, an oracle, that they are superior to other people because they have this information, or even though it's not real information. And you can think about this. If you're a conspiracy theorist, and let's say you believe 5G is frying our brains. I can put you in a room with a professor of radiobiology. I can put you in a room with the best medical expert in the world or the best radio frequency expert in the world who can tell you that you might be mistaken. And you can simply say, I know more than those people because I, I know something. I'm special. And it really works. You have to do no work whatsoever. And not only do you get the uh, the, the alluring feeling of, of thinking you're special, 
you also get to pontificate on these subjects without actually really knowing anything about them. And there's two classic examples of that. People who believe and perpetuate the idea there's a link between autism and the MMR vaccine, which there is not. When they are surveyed, they know the least about both vaccination and autism. So this is another. This is a manifestation of what is often called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Often the people that are strongest of opinion and think they know the most actually know the least. And you see that with conspiracy theorists an awful lot. But you can see the appeal to ego that motivates these people. And there's a social reward. You can go online and write your crazy ideas and you'll get a following. And that makes you feel like you're accepted, like you're special, like you're not a total waster. The other category of conspiracy theorists, I would call the victims of conspiracy theorists. So while these people are narcissistic and doing the thing to appeal to their own ego, and they don't really care that much about the consequences of it. They just want to be seen as Galileo-like figures or whatever else. You have other people that are just looking for information and are scared and are vulnerable and don't know what to believe. And they come across these people and they become unwitting vectors of this stuff. We see this in, and it's been particularly studied in the context of vaccination. This is called in vaccination, vaccine hesitancy. So if you stumble across a conspiracy theory about vaccination, you get very afraid and you become hesitant to vaccinate. And I would argue you become a victim of that. And I think it's very similar with conspiracy theories because the same logic is going on, that there are people that are perpetuating this because they do it for their own appeal. And there's people that are just victims of this. So we've got to be careful to distinguish between the two. Another motivation for people to fall for conspiracy theories is aversion to randomness. People do not like the reality that most of the world, or most of the events that happen in it are not preordained. They are not planned. We live in a sea of noise and randomosity. Chaos. It's all chaos. Absolutely. And we put a narrative to it and we call it history. Then this happened and then this happened. And oftentimes it's like, yeah, I mean, if you had asked someone to uh, predict the events of the First World War 20 years before it, they would have failed miserably. Because consequence leads to consequence, and a lot of it is unforeseen. That is horrifying to people. It is sometimes easier to believe that there is someone in control, even if they're a bad person, even if they're up to something, that there is a, there is a narrative and that there is a rhyme and a reason to it, instead of the fact and the reality is we live in a very unfair sea of noise where things happen, and sometimes really bad things happen to good people, and sometimes no bad things happen to terrible people. And that doesn't seem fair. And I guess that might be, you could argue that's one of the motivations for religious belief as well, maybe. But it's certainly there. The idea that there is someone up to something is more reassuring, perversely, to some people than the reality that it's it's all a mess. So which is Donald Trump? Trump lies because it's, it's opp- he's opportunistic and he's narcissistic. Trump is then today on Twitter telling people that he never said coronavirus was a hoax. And then people are sending back videos of him saying it's when he said it was a hoax. And he goes, fake news, never happened. Is he narcissistic? Absolutely. Because all that matters to Trump is Trump. And conspiracy theories for him are useful. Because if he just throws them out there, he never has to take responsibility for anything he messes up. In fact, you see that with conspiracy theorists a lot. They go, oh, you know, it's not my my fault my life's a mess because it was, you know, the Freemasons. No, in fact, you didn't do anything. You know, like, it's very convenient. But to give you a bizarre idea of why when, and your listeners, when I say, that they don't care about the consistency of a narrative. Trump illustrates that beautifully. The narrative changes every two days, and he will rewrite history when it suits him. And one of the papers I read for the book, and I really loved it, was, and I named a chapter in the book after it, I called it Schrodinger's Bin Laden, and I'll tell you why I called it that. Karen Douglas is a brilliant academic, and she researches why conspiracy theorists think the way they do. And one of the things she did is she recruited a lot of people with her colleagues who believe in conspiracy theories, and they gave them conflicting narratives. 
And in one narrative, they gave them the idea that Osama bin Laden had faked his own death because he worked for the CIA. He was a, you know, he was a stooge who did this. And in the other version, he actually was an innocent person that they had blamed by the NSA and was assassinated because he knew too much. Now, you'll notice that one of those narratives that Osama bin Laden is alive and one he is dead. Conspiracy theorists were equally likely to believe both at the same time and see no issue with that whatsoever. So in my head, this conjured up a Schrodinger's bin Laden who's both in an alive and dead state at the same time. They also did it with an English audience and asked whether they thought Princess Diana had faked her own death or whether the Queen had had her murdered. And again, the overlap of people who believed both of these at the same time was stunning. And what that shows you is the motivation for a lot of conspiracy theories is the belief that you know something. It doesn't matter if it's consistent. It matters that you think you know it. So these people are not interested in objective reality or discovering deeper truths. They're doing literally everything in their power to hold on to a narrative that they know something. That's what motivates them. Could we just go through it one by one? And could you explain? And I want to preface this by, by reminding our, our listeners that, that David you know, is a cancer researcher, an expert on cancers and tumours. Why is it that UV light and vitamin D, it's possible, isn't it? Couldn't it? That has all sorts of health benefits. Could it not work on a virus? There's always a grain of truth, albeit horrifically distorted, underlying different beliefs or a misunderstanding of the truth. It is true that UVC, germicidal UVC, which is the upper band of energy of UV light, can sterilize things. It's called germicidal or virucidal. We actually use that to sterilize medical equipment and water all the time. The caveat with that is it only works on surfaces and things outside the body. Once a virus has got inside you and is hijacking your cellular machinery, that's not going to work. Secondly, this is also highly phototoxic or cytotoxic to humans. We do not expose ourselves to UVC because it destroys our cells. There's an obvious problem with then trying to use that on a person. It's it's a classic example in cancer research. You, I come across conspiracy theories and cancer all the time and the, you get grains of truth in everything like the idea that you can cure cancer using cannabis and they'll say oh thc kills uh, cancer cells in a petri dish you know, yeah so does sneezing on them so does bleach so does anything if water kills them the problem is that's a very different question than trying to kill cancer cells inside a human body while not killing the human cells that go with it so that's where one of the misunderstandings come from and then you look at the bleach thing the bleach thing fascinates me because i've been writing about groups for a few years who actually sell bleach to children to cure them and i put that in inverted commas of autism so one of the groups you can you can look up and please never give these groups money is the genesis 2 church and the genesis 2 church believe that they have a special solution that basically is a cure-all it's a panacea it's bleach it has poisoned children in the uk it has poisoned children in canada it has poisoned children in ireland and australia and every one of the health services in those countries has issued a statement against it they were the group that wrote to trump by the way they implored him to go and say this and he basically did and unfortunately i have seen firsthand the consequences because i've been writing about this for a few years and obviously autism is not an acquired condition it, you know you can't cure it but yet these groups will target and there are alt med groups who target vulnerable parents and tell them that they can do this and they basically give children bleach enemas which is bizarre not good for you at all i should i should emphasize and again a grain of truth can bleach kill germs and cells yeah absolutely uh, again but those cells in your body different ball game please please do not ingest bleach it says it on the container for very good reason and this is where I get concerned, because when the American president comes out and free balls around these things, it adds a veneer of legitimacy 
to pseudoscientific ideas that do serious harm. And already in America, there have been poisonings based on people following the president's advice. And I mean, just a few weeks ago, he was opining on a drug that he said was uh, was was miraculous and brilliant. When most of the medical professionals who study this were going, hang on now, the evidence doesn't say that. And again, this leads to harm later on. So it's not consequence free. They're claiming there is a connection between the 5G waves and the spread of the virus. Could there be a connection between the electromagnetic radiation and the way this virus is spreading now? Let me be crystal clear. There is no known mechanism. There is no likely mechanism. There is no even really conceivable mechanism that you could induce uh, a virus or the spread of a virus through electromagnetic waves. And if you could do that, you would already control the world, okay? You wouldn't have to make up a virus to roll out your 5G because that's an insane, that would be basically creating life. It is not feasible. We'd have to rewrite all known biology and physics to make any degree of sense with it. So yeah, it's a fine narrative if you just want to disregard three or 400 years of scientific progress and ignore it because it's not convenient, but it doesn't make any sense. It just has that veneer of, oh, that sounds scientific. It's not. And I need to assure people when they hear that, that is a hallmark of someone that doesn't know what they're talking about. You talked about the, the, one of the motivations earlier for people like Alex Jones. But what you didn't mention is these guys are also making a lot of money from all the people clicking and sharing their YouTube videos, right? And selling their supplements. They love selling supplements for some damn reason. Often the target of the anti-vaccine movement is our pharmaceutical companies and the idea that shadowy corporations are profiting by selling us these dangerous products such as vaccines in their world. But nobody ever stops to consider all the money that these conspiracy entrepreneurs are making, right? I often envisage them actually as like Wizard of Odd figures, albeit dressed in baseball caps and sitting somewhere in Ohio, California or in the Ukraine, laughing their heads off at all the fools clicking on their YouTube and sharing this nonsense uh, while they're just sort of the cash till is ringing at their end. Well, oddly enough, Alex Jones basically tried to use that as a defense in his court case with Sandy Hook. And, and, and I write about it in the book. He was horrific to the families of the victims of Sandy Hook. And they sued him and they won. And then he tried to essentially claim he was a performance artist and he was just making money off this. And you're like, what? And, and never forget, by the way, Donald Trump guessed it on his show several times. So this is how bizarre the whole thing is when you sit down and realize, you, I think you're right. But I also think these people start believing their own hubris. The problem is if people start treating you like you're an oracle, you kind of start seeing yourself as an oracle. And if you're already kind of narcissistic, it probably feels good to have an audience telling you that you're great. In your book, you talk about how we've never been more at the mercy of charlatans and fools, you write. But then you also point out there's also this paradox, because thanks to the internet, we have access to more knowledge than at any other point in history. Yet the same freedom that the internet affords us to inform and educate ourselves also allows misinformation and falsehood to spread further and faster than ever before. And I think that this is exemplified massively by what's going on right now with COVID. That is the danger, isn't it? That we're really up against it now with these conspiracy theories. Absolutely. When I started doing work on conspiracy theories a good few years ago, people would smile at me and go, oh, it's kind of, kind of quirky, kind of quaint. And I kept saying, the reason I've gotten into this is that this is seriously dangerous. This is undermining our societal trust. It's, it's confusing people about what to believe. It's inducing vaccine hesitancy. It's causing physical and uh, psychological harm to people. And then people kind of go, oh, but how could it do that much damage? And I think now we see that this, this is very damaging. And 
the paradox of the era we, in which we live is, of course, that we do have access to the entire repository of the world's information on our phones, quite literally in our fingertips. And yet, because we don't have the basic skills to differentiate between a falsehood and a fact, that can do us serious harm. So when we're accosted by some kind of cacophony of claims, the question is, how do we how do we work out what's real and what's not? And that's not a trivial question. And I have a lot of sympathy for people coming up to me and saying, I don't know what to believe. And there's a deliberate reason for that too, that um, sometimes that's beneficial to have people not sure what to believe. In historical terms, there's often been an example where conspiracy theories are perpetuated because they are beneficial. We talk about Russia's influence in spreading misinformation. Well, they have been doing that, but they haven't just been doing that in the internet era. They've been doing that for decades. In the 1970s and 80s, they were spreading conspiracy theories that they hoped would undermine the West. And they would often fund groups that would believe, say, anti-fluoride conspiracy theories, because they knew that would lead to people not being sure what to believe and to distrusting their government. And one of the most famous examples they did was during the AIDS crisis, the very early days of the AIDS crisis. We didn't know what caused it. And it was called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency. Now, later on, we found out that it affects everyone, but we didn't know a virus caused it. We had no idea. It was called sometimes gay cancer in the press, if you look at the old headlines. And what actually happened is Russian Soviet intelligence at the time said, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to to stir the pot. So they spread conspiracy theories that uh, AIDS was a man-made weapon. Does that sound familiar? It should. And they spread that. They called it Operation Infection. And it did a lot of harm because people started being distrustful and not cooperating and, you know, having a lot of anger towards Reagan, who deserved, in fairness, a lot of anger for not acting quickly enough. But he didn't deserve anger for it being a man-made bioweapon because it was not. And the irony of that, I think, is that reality doesn't care one iota for what we believe. Because just a few years later, Russia was absolutely hammered by HIV. And they had to go to America and seek the help of American virologists who'd been working on this for a lot longer. And one of the backdoor diplomacy things of a Cold War was that the Reagan administration said, yeah, you can have a virologist, but you've got to stop spreading that rumor. Eventually, the Soviets apologized for it in 1991. But to this day, over 50% of African-Americans living in the States are sympathetic to the idea that AIDS is a man-made virus. And when I hear people saying coronavirus is it man-made in a lab at Wuhan, I kind of roll my eyes and go, we've heard this before. And indeed, there are fingerprints of Russian and Chinese disinformation on some of these claims. It doesn't mean they come up with them. It means that they are quite happy to stir the pot on them. There's a historical precedent for that. And the irony of that to me is it makes the conspiracy theorists who think they know everything, who think they're onto something, the useful idiots in a real conspiracy that they're entirely missing. I was very struck this week by a doctor saying, when you're listening to people talking about the virus, listen to how often people say, I don't know. And the more they say that, trust them more. So I think when the official message is open and open to question and evidence can be brought in from other places, I think that's a climate that's not very favorable to conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are very brittle. They assert their authority, you know, through joining a small number of dots. And I think when you have an official message that's also very brittle and authoritarian and doesn't engage with the evidence, that's the climate in which conspiracy theories can flourish because people will say, well, remember, they said this about 9-11, you know, they said this about WMDs. You know, so I think in terms of managing the way that conspiracy theories, managing their position in the sort of bigger public discourse, 
I think official openness is their enemy and official assertion of authority is their friend. And I think that becomes a less credible assertion if you can see that, um, you know, the government is listening to the sort of broader public conversation and testing evidence as it emerges. We have social distancing, we have physical hygiene. I think we need to start looking at informational hygiene. We need to start treating information as a potential pathogen as well. Before I spread this, before I share this with my family or my friends, should I check it's okay? Should I go in and put on my skeptical PPE, if that makes sense? Should I go in and say, look, before I accept this claim at face value, even if it's very scary and I want to share it and tell people about it, should I just be a little bit, where did that come from? And simple questions, where are you getting that information from? I love that idea. Indeed, I'd go further. Perhaps what we need isn't just a PPE for the mind, but an inoculation against ignorance. Thanks for listening to Going Viral, The COVID Files. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our series and recommend Going Viral to your friends. We'd also like to hear your views and we'd love for you to rate us too. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then you might want to follow us on Twitter at goingviral.com underscore pod or connect to us on instagram at going viral underscore the podcast our producer is melissa fitzgerald and this has been the covid files